0: Welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the busy intersection where faith and reason meet. I'm Doug Keck, the gatekeeper here at the mothership where Mother Angelica began it all in Irondale, Alabama back in 1981, believe it or not. And your questions are so important. We want to make sure Spitzer's Universe at EW10.com is the address you send them to. Check out all of Father Spitzer's websites if you'd like to really be informed. Credible CredibleCatholic.com, and PurposefulUniverse.com. And, of course, Father Business Universe is always available on EWTN On Demand 24-7, our YouTube channel as well. And there's many other programs there. Recently we added Suffering and What to Do With It with Dr. Alice von Hildebrand and Father Benedict Groeschel, uh, two future saints as far as I'm concerned, uh, and uh, great, great Catholics. And our show topic, Human Freedom, Moving into Temptation, from Father's book, Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives, available through the catalog, naturally. Uh, we're going to talk more about some of Father's new books coming out, because we assume you have this one by now. But speaking of another book that you should check out, it's the book of the month for May, Living Calm, Mastering Anger and Frustration, by Dr. Ray Gurindy. I think it's an autobiography. So you have to check that book out. It should be fun. Dr. Ray's always interesting. And... I had a lot of fun interviewing him on that book. And of course, we turn to somebody else I enjoy talking with every week, Father Spitzer. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing great, Doug, yourself. Excellent, excellent. So if you'd like to kick things off with a prayer, that'd be great, Father. Thank you.
1: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, again, we give you thanks for your blessings to us, the blessing of our church, our family the redemption you give us through your Son that we celebrate in this Easter time. We ask you today to send your Holy Spirit down upon Doug, myself, our whole audience, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. Please continue to help our efforts to move along the possibility of restoring a culture of life in this country And please, Lord, protect us as we continue uh, to protect life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.
0: Amen. Amen. So, a lot happening, obviously. Uh, I hope you had a good birthday, that everything worked out, and that you got oh, everything you had on your list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, the,
1: the main point, of course, is uh, on the road to salvation. <laughs> there you go. Right. That,
0: that's, uh, that's the new movie we're working on.
1: Yeah, so, that's right.
0: <laughs> salvation Road. So, uh, let's get yeah. to a couple of uh, topical things out there in the news and I wanted to bring up a story which I was unfamiliar with but maybe you uh, were aware already. Uh, It was a story uh, that recently came out and it said that Planned Parenthood profits big from getting kids hooked on transgender hormones through school to clinic pipeline which I was not really, I know they had clinics but I hadn't really put together the transgender thing. It says Planned Parenthood has quietly been in the gender transition business since at least 2017, today more than a third of its offices, 239 clinics in 40 states, provide transgender services. Hey, were you aware of that? No. All right. right. Uh, I'm not. Uh, what does this have to do with Planned Parenthood? Uh, I mean, that's what right. I was gosh. wondering. I was wondering the same thing. <laughs> it seems a little uh, outside their core, no? Yes, except the, for. a mission uh, statement. Yeah,
1: yeah, no kidding. Uh, bizarro. I mean, I can't even imagine. But of course, uh, it's certainly consistent with their philosophy of, uh, of um, subjectivizing the culture, subjectivizing mm-hmm. identity. I suppose that might all help in subjectivizing the uh, the idea that killing a baby is okay. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's uh, perfectly consistent with uh, their thinking. And um, why not promote one other? Uh, you know, um, way of destabilizing truth, objectivity uh, in the culture. It it helps with all forms of propaganda.
0: Right. In this particular article, uh, (laughs) they say, despite Planned Parenthood's deceptive marketing, transition, and as you've talked about this many times, is not Mm -hmm. proven to be the best medical practice. We know that between 88 to 90 percent of genders as four kids will reconcile with their biological sex if allowed to go through puberty, untreated. Moreover, those who do transition are estimated as you've said 19 times more likely to commit suicide than their peers
1: that is very true and uh, this is a 30 year swedish study that was done uh, obviously in sweden it's a very uh, transgender friendly uh, you know climate culturally uh, for them and uh, 10 to 15 years after the surgery Uh, you see an uptick in suicides that's a staggering 19 percent actually in the Swedish study it was a staggering 20 times higher not not percent 20 times higher so this is unbelievable Mm -hmm. I mean if you think of a doubling you know and then 20 times my gosh you know, it's uh, over right. the top. So um, you know, it's uh, people are not happy. And as I've said before, there's a lot of research that was done uh, on this in Sweden. And the problem is, what you have are two different things coming together. You have unresolved anxieties. Um, you know that um, these uh, poor uh, kids, when they were younger, they were trying to resolve it. Mm-hmm. Um, by having a sex change. The, you know, of course, there's a lot of self-hatred involved in there. There's a lot of um, probably sexual abuse that might have happened. Uh, uh, upwards of 55% mm-hmm. of the kids who, who are um, in, in that uh, area of, tra- of wanting a, a sex change are definitely, they've been abused either physically or sexually, mostly sexually. And then, of course, there's um, the anxiety mm-hmm. level in the household, which can be resolved if there's just a little bit of therapy and the parents can hear about what's going on that's making the kid focus on himself. That mm-hmm. the anxiety within the household is his fault. And if he were just the other gender, his parents would be happier with him, and therefore the anxiety would go away. Mm-hmm. Well, when you take these anxieties, Uh, combined of abuse of you know anxiety in the household uh, you know the self-hatred their self-loathing that that can extend out of that Um, you put it all together and then you say you know the kid thinks I'll be all over it if I can just get a a sex change my problems will be over Mm -hmm. and so um, then they're they promise the child this when they're when um, they're still young prior to adolescence And then when the adolescence uh, uh, day comes, The child says, now I want it. Uh, You know, I've hit puberty here. This is my right. And so, of course, they give the child the sex change. Now, everything will seem just dandy for about Mm -hmm. three years. But then the anxieties begin to occur. And now you've got a double problem because not only do you have the self-loathing and, um, uh, you know, know, emotions that are there, you're now, uh, the child's looking at him, the adolescent's looking at himself, going well wait a minute i've done myself permanent damage mm-hmm. i cannot return to my biological identity and now i see that this is not solving any of my anxieties, any of my problems and all of a sudden the refocus idea comes in uh, unfortunately it's too late the damage has been done and that's when the anxiety start doubling and tripling and you get that staggering um, 20 times increase mm-hmm. um, in the suicide rate uh, 10 to 15 years after the surgery right so absolutely. it takes a little time uh, for it to reach the level but uh, then these are actual suicides so it really is just terribly distressing right. uh, to the person and it's not just what they do to themselves it's what happens right. afterward when the buyers
0: regret plus right. the the anxieties you know come back to home. why do you why do you think uh, I mean I know we've talked about this a little bit before why do you think it seems like I mean obviously we've got cases out there where where the schools have been kind of caught uh, you know coaching kids without their parents being aware of the situation uh, in other cases mm-hmm. the parents are very much in favor of this why why do you think that is
1: Well, I think in um, today, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the whole idea is my child should get what he wants. Uh, But there's a, you know, and and that really, you know, previously, let's face it, in past generations, there wasn't that uh, sort of uh, child has, uh, you know, complete control over his life philosophy. Um, and uh, today, that really is dominant. There are two problems with that. The first is the frontal lobe, which is the, the, the part of the brain which is you know, um, you know, involved in critical judgment and the control of emotion and you know, the, the, the sense of getting the lay of the land and prudence, et cetera. That frontal lobe does not develop until uh, fully until the child is about 20 uh, years old at the mm-hmm. at the youngest, uh, probably a little bit older than that. Well, the idea that you're going to give this decision over to an 11-, 12-year-old who has a barely developed frontal lobe is insanity. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the first thing. Uh, they, they certainly are not capable of doing it. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the child already has in his mind the thought, that the therapeutic option um, isn't going to work anyway um, but it always does work in combination with the ch- child's natural transitioning ability. Mm. So as we've talked about before in many cases, uh, you know, 90% of the children will transition naturally right. and, m- and the vast majority will transition with therapy back to their biological Um, uh, Gender identity they'll go right back to what they are and they'll be satisfied with it Mm -hmm. the point though is that the parent you know um, Wanting to please the child and being told that that's a good thing to do to give the child what he or she wants Instead of saying, you know, go through some of the hard work of therapy and just be patient and wait, uh, which would have been the normal thing uh, mm-hmm. that parents would have done uh, in a previous age or just reinforce the goodness of the sexual identity that the, the boy or the girl was born with, um, you know, uh, biologically, mm-hmm. uh, rather than do that, they start caving in to the societal pressures to be an open parent, mm-hmm. to be a parent who's free thinking, to be a parent that would not withhold this privilege from their child. Let's face it, in the elitist uh, um, you know, culture that you know, is part of our own culture, right? We've mm-hmm. got a very heavy elitist group uh... within our uh... culture subgroup within our culture and when you look at that in in elitism uh, autonomous freedom you know complete freedom even the complete freedom of a person who's eleven uh... twelve years old or even six seven eight years old mm-hmm. uh... this is kind of honored as uh... something that is desirable and good uh... for the child when in point of fact it's horrible for mm-hmm. the child. They don't have the experience. They don't have the frontal lobe development. They do not have the maturity of having been tested uh, in their own lives. They do not have religious and, and moral maturation of listening to their conscience and dealing with moral decisions and listening to their religious uh, uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. feelings and identity within themselves. In fact, uh, they're taught at every moment to suppress their conscience, to suppress the religious feelings the numinous feelings uh, that they have in favor of going back to the internet and getting some more uh, you know more let's say physical um, you know palpable stimulation Mm -hmm. so all of these things being the case um, you know this child uh, is probably the least equipped person in the world to be making a decision like this, right. and yet, of course, the medical establishment seems uh, to be, um, you know, pushing this along. Yeah. Uh, no, there's a lot of doctors who don't push this along and are terribly upset with it. But there are a lot of doctors, but a, a, lot, of there's a lot of them are money afraid
0: to it. speak out too, which we've seen in this kind that of is cancer correct. culture, right? That's
1: right. They're afraid to speak out. They're afraid of getting pressurized, of being thought to be a troglodyte, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. All the things which I'm proud of being called, you know, <laughs> uh, please, you know, uh, I, was, I'm your... A good your, song your, uh, by the Jimmy
0: they, Castor Bunch in 1972, <laughs> but that's okay.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and only you would know that. <laughs> but anyway yeah i'm I'm happy to be and proud to be right, your troglodyte. Uh, troglodyte that's right <laughs> now
0: and and of course in the in the nineteen eighty four world ministry of truth world we live in uh you yeah. know with these centers that are uh plant per their wellness centers are of course yeah. is what they're called right like like all I remember very are. well that's right, right. right. that's right, right right you know let's yeah. have that uh, but,
1: uh and Big Brother only wants the best for you. That's right, that's
0: right, Your welfare is our number one concern, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oceania's always at war, always been at war with Eurasia. Right. Uh, so. yeah, that's right. <laughs> gosh that's right, absolutely. Uh, Another thing that came out I thought was interesting was, uh, yeah. surprise, surprise, we're finding out lots of data, in the post-COVID period that's coming out, uh, including Mm -hmm. some doctors who were trying to say certain things who were silenced over the last couple of years. And now it's turning out that maybe at least some of what they were saying was quite true. But here's a study that just came out of Harvard University. Guess what? Where schools remained in person, gaps did not widen. Where schools shifted to remote learning, gaps widened sharply. Shifting to remote instruction was like turning a switch on a critical piece of our social infrastructure that we had taken for granted. So the idea of wanting to get people back into the classroom because that's what was good for the kids has been proven out.
1: Yes, it's very true and of course it's common sense and I think a lot of good common sense parents knew that this was the case and since children seemed at the time not to be vulnerable to the disease in any significant way, Mm -hmm. I mean we could have kept those classrooms going Uh, but of course we had a lot of people who overreacted Mm -hmm. uh, to this in in the schools and because of that Not only did they not come back when it was pretty clear that children weren't significantly affected, they decided to go longer. Mm -hmm. And several of the unions went longer, um, you know, uh, pushing the teachers to stay out. And of course, the gaps just kept widening. And um, yeah, it doesn't take Harvard to figure out that you're gonna have gaps, you you know, not just, uh, by the way, intellectual gaps and educational gaps, you're gonna have, you know, social gaps and even psychological maturation Gaps. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and all, all of the gaps are, are, have been proven to be the case.
0: Yes, and, and what we'll do is just move people ahead and explain that that's what yeah. the problem is, and we'll turn what yeah. they used to teach in high schools into what they teach in the community colleges <laughs> and roll that into remedial education in college well, and, right. and end up with that's a right. $100,000 bill. Uh, but otherwise, <laughs> <Yeah>. everything's fine. $100,000? Yeah. <laughs> 100000000 100 <laughs> Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's get to some questions uh, from people to get caught up. Uh, Dear Father Spitzer, what are options for embryos not used in the in vitro fertilization process? Can they be baptized? Can they be adopted, left frozen, or buried in a Catholic cemetery? I'm asking as the grandmother to these embryos, the parents are not practicing Catholics, Antonia.
1: Yeah, well Antonia, of course, they can be frozen but it requires the consent of the parents uh... in order to do that mm. and so uh... that's the you know um, that's going to be a problem for you uh... because if you ask that they be frozen you know um, they and the parents don't want to do it it's not going to happen uh... the second thing of course is um, well, uh, there are priests who would baptize them uh, if they were in their presence. But remember, the Lord is not going to condemn these uh, little children that didn't get brought to life, uh, right? Um, they, you know, if that didn't happen, um, the Lord is going to still uh, bring them right into the heavenly kingdom, uh, just like we saw, you know, in that. Uh, book you know heaven is for real you know mm-hmm. the the little girl who comes back right, right. and she was only I think the mom was pregnant for only two months mm-hmm. um, uh, so so that's uh, right. again um, you know pos- you know God's going to take that little uh, child unto himself well, I have me, no doubt right. about that but um, a baptism would be great if Fine. you could uh, uh, if you could get um, get a hold of those embryos, and that, of course, is the perennial problem Mm -hmm. for you as the mom. Only one who can give permission to do that Mm -hmm. are the parents.
0: Okay. Let me ask you, because we were talking last week about a lot of abortion-related issues, and and, and Mm -hmm. one of them, even that with the child who ends up in heaven. So, uh, I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't hear it as much, but there used to be some argument that said, well, you know, the baby's going to go to heaven anyway, so what's the difference if I abort it?
1: Well, there's three differences um, that are very fundamental. Of course, the first difference is it's an egregious uh, crime, not only against God, but against humanity. First of all, uh, you know, even though the child's going to go to heaven, um, what are you doing? You're killing, you're frustrating God's plan of creation. His plan of creation is not to take that child uh, into heaven immediately. His plan of creation is to let that child have a life uh, with parents and to be brought up and then to, uh, you know, to have a, a, a life on this earth and then to proceed to the heavenly kingdom. So that's the first thing. The second thing, of course, it's an egregious crime against the child. Mm. I mean, and as we've just uh, said in last week's program, mm. uh, you know, this is uh, uh, f- the most fundamental injustice that you can perpetrate. And the idea of just killing these childs, uh, nilly-willy, you know, uh, willy-nilly, I should say, uh, is just uh, just not only criminal, mm. uh, not only unjust, but, of course, the idea that this can be justified uh, you know, in in order to uh, um, you know to make uh, a more convenient uh, pregnancy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, th- this is just it's nonsense. Our priorities are are completely out of place. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third problem, of course, is you could apply the logic to any stage of human development. Well, you know, let's face it. I mean, the child is still an innocent after he's born, mm-hmm. and um, let's face it. You know that. Uh, You know this child just does have, as Peter Singer says, blindness is a a very good reason to kill a child, uh, you know, uh, through infanticide after birth. And and, you know, Peter Singer, the Princeton fellow. uh, Well, you know, of course, I take personal umbrage at that thought. Uh, You know, but uh, the the thought is, uh, yeah, what's what's the difference? You're gonna, you know, that little baby is still innocent. Gonna wind, God's gonna bring him into heaven anyway. Kill him too. Kill anybody along the way kill any innocent well we may as well let's face it mm-hmm. um, you know um, uh, people you know who have an IQ that's slightly under 120 mm-hmm. I mean they're they're you know they're, they're you know their quality of life is so insignificant and so low uh, just have them go to confession and uh, we'll right. take care of the rest. You know, get them after confession. <laughs> you know, they'll go to heaven anyway. Right. I mean, you get the point.
0: I mean, Yeah, sure, the, you can the, the, take every yeah. all the people who are on uh, assistance yeah. who uh, need government assistance. Yeah. Well, you know, sure. they don't need to reproduce, and certainly yeah. that way there'll be fewer yeah. of those, and uh, it'll yeah. be cheaper because they won't have families we'll have to take care of. So.
1: Yeah, say your prayers, make it a good contrition. We'll take care of the rest.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Here's another, here's another question, kind of uh, from Easter. Dear Father Spitzer, how would the three women have moved the stone to get Jesus in the tomb? They had planned to attend to his body, so they obviously expected to gain access to it. Thank you, Rose.
1: Well, I think, Rose, it's just like uh, anything else. Uh, I don't think they could have moved that stone. Um, And, you know, I mean, obviously the stone is meant to be locked into place. So it's kind of on a little ramp there, a little roller. So as it kind of rolls in front of the tomb, what happens is it it locks into place when it Mm. rolls into a a spot which is much deeper uh, than the actual slide. So the women would not have been thinking that they could do this by themselves. Uh, That clearly would have been a... uh, an impossibility. So I have to think that they thought that maybe they could get some help or you know maybe there would be somebody in attendance that could help them. The Roman guards that who were, uh, yeah. that
0: they heard yeah. that the people, there were either yeah. temple guards or Roman guards would be there, right?
1: Yeah, but of course those, they wouldn't have helped very much but mm-hmm. uh, but uh, uh, being um, you know that these were uh, you know, friends of Jesus. But the point is they probably had some right. thought in mind that they could get somebody to to help them and or maybe God would take care of it or something but uh, uh, clearly the stone had been rolled into place so uh, they were probably as optimistic as sometimes I get when I uh, go on a new venture and start a a new organization or something and think, oh, God's (laughs) going to take care of this, or the Mother Teresa plan, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, well, I'm just going to start this new house for the dying, and Matt Mugger is saying, how are you going to possibly finance this? Oh, God will take care of it, you know, (laughs) 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 and he does, of course.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Next up, dear Father Spitzer, the three great philosophers, Aquinas, Augustine, and Pascal all believe that most people go to hell so did many saints unfortunately so did many saints what what, what do you, what do you think Are most people lost brian and i i, I honestly don't know that they necessarily believed that
1: they well, they they didn't think yeah. that i mean first of all the idea you know that they could discern um you know what god's will for most people would be mm. uh certainly you know um augustine had his cavalier expressions right mm. you know like uh uh... you know the um, you know, the, the road to hell, you know, was paved with good intentions, mm. or the reason most people stay out of hell is because of ignorance. And, mm. I mean, he had a lot of these rather flip expressions mm. uh, that he used in his po- polemical writings. But, uh, you know, did he mean literally that most right. people are going to hell? No. Did Aquinas say that? I don't think uh, Aquinas said anything of the kind, and I don't think Aquinas ever felt that he was capable of judging uh, who was supposed to be in heaven and hell or actually speaking for the Lord about mm. how that was to be done so I don't think uh, that's there now Pascal mm. is a different mm. matter mm. Um, you know remember Pascal you know he, he did verge on um, uh, being part of a, of, a, of a French movement called right. Jansenism right. that did have that's um, true that's true um, you know kind of a his Hell-first sister, mentality. I think his sister was
0: involved with it, and yeah. I think that's how he came involved, though.
1: Yeah, he came to some... But I don't think he was directly involved, yes. but he might have made some statement that right. uh, certainly didn't make it in the ponce, uh, you know, that I'm aware of, and certainly didn't believe that he himself was... Uh, head in that direction, but um, it was in the atmosphere at the time, mm-hmm. and maybe uh, that was there, but as a general rule, mm-hmm. um, you know, the idea that you know most people are going to hell, that's way above all of our pay grade. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> no one uh, who's a human being can, can, can uh, know this. Uh, I mean, that's like literally having mm-hmm. access to the will of God, the loving will all of right. God, who understands a billion times more about every human being than any of us could understand? The idea well, that we're qualified to make such a judgment is crazy. So um, uh, you don't ever want to get caught in that um, right. in that mode. Well, and um, enough, stay little, away from those kinds of things. A
0: little bit of hyperbole to get somebody's attention is probably not a bad oh, well, idea that, when you're dealing that with a lot of be. people who maybe are not thinking that they've yeah. got to change. So.
1: Well, as I said, uh, you know, Augustine could do that just mm. fine. Although, I must say, uh, Aquinas is not that accustomed to hyperbole. Mm. Uh, Augustine certainly did use it. And Pascal had his moments, mm. uh, definitely could use it. <laughs>
0: well, I, you know, sometimes I think we're dealing with reverse Pascal's wager here. It used to be, well, yeah. it may or may not be, so I'll think that there is and then I'll be covered. Now people just figure, yeah. well, uh, I'll act like there isn't because there there isn't, isn't one Uh, no heaven, or everybody's going there. So one way or the other, I'll I'll be okay.
1: Uh, Yeah, uh, yeah, right. But uh, alas, alas, so, uh, you know, uh, I don't think that's the case. But Mm. Pascal, you know, the wager Mm. does have some uh, idea of what's going on in his mind. Mm. So you can see pretty much that he's thinking, well, you know, if you at least try to get on board, Mm -hmm. you have a reasonably good chance of being saved. And so uh, that doesn't sound like a... Uh, hell, first advocate no, myself, no. so I do, I do think the wager kind of disproves that that possibility. And certainly, I don't think Aquinas would ever have said that. Uh, like I said, Zinaguzin could have definitely made a uh, a reference. You know, uh, right? <laughs> you know, I one time he did have that flip expression. What was God doing? Um, you know, before uh, uh, the creation of the world, or mm-hmm. something creating hell for people who asked that question. Mm. Now, did you know, Augustine mean that literally? Of course mm. not. You know, I mean, that was a humorous thing, you know. It uh, didn't mean that people who thought of that question were really going to hell. But that, you know, Augustine did use those expressions.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a minute or so before the break here. Dear okay. Father Spitzer on another EW ten program, the host said that someone who never heard about Jesus through no fault of his own could still be saved depending on how they live their lives. I thought I heard you answer a question about salvation indicating that without Jesus, you'll not be saved. Are we missing something about what accepting Jesus Christ actually means? Can a person who never heard of Christ to accept Him as Savior be saved? Joseph.
1: Yes, Joseph, he could be saved. Mm-hmm. And that other EW10 program, uh, that quote is correct. It comes right out of Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution of the Catholic Church, that all um, people who are trying to follow God as they know him um, and and trying to do this through the dictates of their conscience are eligible uh, for salvation, of course, through mm-hmm. the merits of Jesus Christ, right, right. through the redemptive act and the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Yes, um, it would be through Jesus, but um, they are eligible. And the idea, of course, is that you cannot uh, be condemned because of an accident of birth. Mm -hmm. So, the way you phrased the question, Joseph, was, well, wait a minute, what if a person were born in a country where they, uh, or a place in a country, where they could, would never have heard of Jesus? Or even if they had heard of Jesus, they heard of Him only polemically, and so they had no possibility of knowingly accepting Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus in their hearts. And so the Catholic Church covers this because in order for you to commit a mortal sin, you'd have to do it with sufficient knowledge and full consent of the will. Well, a person who has never really heard of Jesus or has only heard bad things about Jesus, right? they can't have you know, knowledge right. sufficient to be uh, thrown into hell. And certainly they couldn't have full consent of the will without the most basic kind of knowledge. Um, so, of course, they're not going to be thrown into hell. Um, um, you know, for for right. not uh, accepting Jesus. But you I may know, be, unfortunately,
0: in- I might have to. Uh, I might be if I don't go to a break right away here. So <laughs> I, I don't want to get any more in trouble than I already am. <laughs>
1: right. Stay
0: with us much more with Father Spitzel. I'll let him finish his wonderful answer right after this. So much for staying with us right here in Father Spitzer's universe, and of course we're talking about your questions, and we'll get to the topic of human freedom in a moment from Father's wonderful book, Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives, and Father Spitzer is there. Uh, I cut him off mid-sentence. There, would you like to finish anything on uh, your oh, discussion no, related I was just to hell? There, say, there uh,
1: uh, uh, no, I just wanted to say that uh, you know there is a passage in John that makes it you know, or it says anyone uh, who um, has uh, uh, heard but has not believed, you know, is, um, is um, you know, um, it, it will, it will be condemned or something oh. of that nature. And, of course, you have to, you know, the has heard part is really important, mm-hmm. um, you know, and the, the idea that, uh, um, you know, believe has two, two definitions in John's Gospel. Uh, you can believe uh, or, or not believe has two definitions. Mm-hmm. One is, of course, not believe because you haven't heard and the other is not believe because you were intentionally not believing, which is Mm -hmm. the same thing as rejecting. And in John's Gospel, it's only meant in the latter sense. Not believing is rejecting. It's intentionally not believing, not unintentionally not believing.
0: So you're saying that uh, St. Peter won't accept plausible deniability, no? Uh, No. Think. Yeah. No, he's not going to take it.
1: Okay. No, no, that's not going to go.
0: <laughs> okay, here's here's another question for you, Father. Right up your alley here, from somebody who you target with your wonderful uh, websites. Uh, Dear Father Spitzer, I am a millennial who lapsed from the church for 15 years. I know many other lapsed Catholics. Obviously, we should evangelize everyone, but is it better to target a particular group for evangelizing? I think it's better to evangelize a Protestant than an atheist since they at least believe in Jesus. Tom. Well, Tom, I'm a
1: Mm. go-for-everybody person. I I think that the atheist obviously has an even greater need Mm. and oftentimes people are atheists by default a lot of them are atheists because their parents are atheists Mm. a lot of them are atheists because somebody told them something about god when they were a little kid that's ridiculous like Mm. you know god wants to send everybody to hell and he's just up there and he hates you and so the little kid just goes well you know that's it for me you know uh, Uh, you know I'm you know I'm had it anyway so Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna believe in God or something and these things happen by default all the time and sometimes you know person encounters the problem of suffering and they just can't figure it all out they get so depressed as an adolescent mm-hmm. that they start distancing themselves from God. They're not talking about it with their parents, not talking about it with their teachers or their priests, and so they get so distant from God. It's hard for them to get back. So, um, and then a lot of them fall prey to what I call the Dawkins-esque. You know websites uh, god delusion website mm-hmm. or something and they read these things and think well he's a very knowledgeable person mm-hmm. but they don't figure to themselves oh 66 percent of scientists are theists you know so they're they're not even on that wavelength at mm-hmm. all and and what's uh, what w- winds up happening mm-hmm. uh is that they believe one person Uh, who is a scientist who is a biologist not a physicist by the way Mm -hmm. and and makes these kinds of statements and then when the person um, you know kind of thinks about it goes well he's a smart person I guess really smart people don't believe in God Mm -hmm. how many kids have thought that one uh, you know by the age of 13 and walked out the the belief uh, walked off the the belief stage so for all intents and purposes I think Mm -hmm. um, what we got to do is really um, you know, go after the atheists. I think uh, you, you can use like New Proofs for the Existence of God and this new book I have coming out mm-hmm. called Science at the Doorstep to God. That's a great one for atheists because it really is pointing out all the intelligent mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, physicists, including Stephen Hawking himself, who wrote you know, his last article you know, in 2016 uh, was really about Um, You know, the fact that a multiverse couldn't be infinite, Mm -hmm. that it would have to have a beginning. And he and his partner, Thomas Hertog are showing this from the non-fractal dimensions of, you know, our universe, uh, which could not have come from uh, an infinite, fractal uh, multiverse. So all of these things are kind of piling up. And if they read those books, that's a first way of getting out of the Mm -hmm. mythologies that have been crafted, um, by the atheists, who are the, by right. far the minority of, of uh, scientists right. in today's culture. Well, let
0: me ask you a question about so, that, too, because mm-hmm. you talk about atheism. Uh, and I think in a prior discussion, you talked about many times with many young people, they're not really atheists, mm-hmm. they're really more agnostic. Is is that the case, yeah. or how do you see it?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of them declare themselves to be unbelievers, mm-hmm. but that's because they're unsure. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there's a kind of a... Uh, almost a sadness and a despair that's mixed in with their uncertainty Mm -hmm. and then when they're kind of given the old uh, cultural pressure of, ah, you just need a crutch or you're just Mm -hmm. a wimp and you have to believe in uh, God in order to, to feel good about yourself, well, let me tell you, there is no God and so, of course, it's the final crushing blow and so the agnosticism when you add the, the, the crutch argument, plus you add the, the silent despair that the kid is feeling mm-hmm. who really does want a God, who really does want to believe in an afterlife, who really does uh, want to have hope uh, in something beyond the mm-hmm. craziness of the world, that, that kind of turns into what I call a proclamation of atheism. But I don't think it's a real atheism. I mean, the sincerely convinced atheist who's Mm. like a Dawkins, and oh, by the way, Dawkins has now uh, claimed that he is no longer an atheist. He is now an agnostic Mm -hmm. with a strong inclination toward atheism. Mm. So uh, even he has changed his mind. Mm. So I mean, for all intents and purposes, you know, I think a lot of these kids, they say these things, but I evangelize them as if they're unbelievers. And I try and, first thing I do is give them the science-based evidence uh, for God, then I can give them other kinds Mm -hmm. of evidence for God, philosophical-based. I definitely give them the near-death experiences, try to get them to see not only Mm -hmm. that they have a transphysical soul, but they are going to survive bodily death, and that there is very likely a domain beyond Mm -hmm. the grave. So, if I can get them up to this point of, you know, the existence of God to a transphysical soul, to a life after death, at that point, then we can start addressing wow. Jesus and the significance of Jesus, et cetera. So all these things being the case, you know, I, I do right. think that we should probably um, evangelize everybody right. equally.
0: Well, I tell you, with the cultural pressure, as you alluded to, and, and thinking of Hawkins mm-hmm. and that, and thinking of UK, if you watch a lot of British television, uh, it's amazing how mm-hmm. secular and anti-Christian it actually is.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, it's anti-Christian mostly because uh, they don't like um, the uh, a moral teaching of Jesus. Right. However, um, you know, uh, what's not being told to you is, well, wait a minute, is the case for Jesus weak or strong? Mm-hmm. I myself think that the case for uh, Jesus is exceedingly strong. And so they're going backwards. I don't like the moral teaching, therefore, I don't want to believe in Jesus. Right. Okay, that's your choice, but that's not any system of proof. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the normal way of going about things is, was Jesus Christ real? Were there testimonies outside the New Testament to Jesus Christ? Of course, there's tons of them, Tacitus, Suetonius, Flavius mm-hmm. Josephus, uh, Babylonian Talmud, etc. Were there, uh, you know, is there good reason to believe that the resurrection happened that we can adduce uh, from, you know, frankly, the historical argument uh, for, for the, the the resurrection, especially those of, of uh, you know um, N.T. Wright and, and John P. Meyer. And, of course, there's a ton of very, very good mm. and persuasive historical arguments just based on what happened with the early churches comparison, uh, in comparison to what happened in other Messianic movements. Mm. But then you get into the Shroud of Turin. And, by the way, as you pointed out, I think it was two, three weeks ago, right, right. Uh, we talked about the new um, wide-angle uh, X-ray scattering. Uh, dating tests that you know, put the shroud to between 55 to 74 AD. Mm. Uh, it's just one more out of a series of already good dating tests that have been done. Uh, by Giulio Fonte, et cetera. You start looking at that shroud and the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus on that shroud and the evidence that uh, of his passion taking place exactly as it was written about in the Gospel accounts. I'm telling you, it is just uncanny. It is simply remarkable. And, and I'll have to take a whole show right. and talk about the atomic uh, theory uh, for uh, you know the origin of the shroud. It is really amazing. But right now, Uh, There's a growing consensus around, um, you know, the fact that uh, Jesus, uh, you know, the one theory that answers all 31 enigmas on the Shroud Mm -hmm. is that um, uh, Jesus' body inside the tomb underwent uh, what's called uh, nuclear disintegration uh, and a low-temperature nuclear reaction, Mm -hmm. which gave rise to, of course, a blast of light and a boom, but most importantly, a flow of positively uh, charged Uh, heavy particles like alpha particles and protons Mm. uh, as well which form the image and a flow of neutrons which of course would explain why the cloth is not decayed and why it's so resistant to solvents and Mm. so forth and so on and a million other kinds of enigmas, uh, 31 actually, Mm -hmm. uh, if not a million, uh, Mm -hmm. kinds of other enigmas uh, that are all explained by this one theory. Well, I don't have to tell anybody out there that the idea of having a body that simply um, simultaneously, every stable atomic nucleus in this body is going to disintegrate in a low temperature nuclear reaction. Uh, you know, simultaneously, Uh, this is a miracle. This doesn't happen every day. In fact, it never happens. There's no physical explanation for it at all. It defies atomic theory. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. that's the best theory we have for not only the production of the image, but for the production of the three-dimensional quality of the image. Because when you really think about it, how come you get the image of the bones inside the body, the backbone, for example, or the bones in the hands, etc., in direct three-dimensional proportionality to the skin and to the Uh, flesh on the outside of the body. And you look at that and you go, well, had the cloth had to penetrate the body? Well, nuclear disintegration, that's a pretty good explanation for for a a penetration of a cloth through that body. And of course, it comes with the same light or or neutron emissions, or I should say heavy particle, Mm. uh, positively charged particle uh, uh, emissions that produce the image, and of course, uh, the neutrons that produce the, the flows that led to the other explanations of the enigma on the shroud and you look at that and there's so many other things that are totally explained um, mm-hmm. by this and uh, it looks pretty much like we got a real right. miracle here okay. and the miracle is got resurrection transparent spiritual body emblazoned all over it truly fascinating
0: we'll have to set that up and put that on our schedule let's move to uh, yeah. <laughs> your book right. on Satan's tactics in the next 11 sure. minutes or so we kind of talked about human freedom and that rolling into temptation on page 204. Now you say temptation can be viewed in a completely secular sense or a spiritual way. What's the difference?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, the, in the secular sense, you could say, well, I'm tempted to do something that's bad for me. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I could say, uh, you know, I could, I'm tempted to take some drugs because I would uh, feel some pleasures from it. And then, you know, but I know... Uh, This is uh, bad for me. So it's rationally, secularly discernible. I don't need religion. I don't need a moral code. I can pretty much tell you drugs are a really bad idea. Could produce some short-term pleasure. Could produce a lot of long-term misery right up to an early death. Do I need a religious code? Do I need my conscience? No. Uh, Just a pure secular judgment would discern that this is a temptation. In other words, mm-hmm. this is, you know, pulling me into something that I know is not good for me mm-hmm. in the long run. Now, uh, you know, when you're talking about, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, you know this temptation, let's take another temptation. Let's take something like, uh, well, I'm um, uh, going to lust after some woman, or I'm going to, I'd like to have some extra money, and I know how I can Um, you know, uh, bamboozle it out of some poor person, Mm. you know, or something like that. And I think, you know, everybody's doing it mm. you know i mean people are just just a little cut in a corner hither and yon. Mm. that person's not going to miss the money anyway they're rich or you know everybody's you know having illicit sexual relationships. i'll just go right ahead and and do it and then you start in and you start this this thing be, you know um, is pulling you into it it may start in a very natural way i just want to get this urge satisfied. Mm. I just wanna get some extra dough, etc., mm. etc. Et well, it might start off this way, but have you ever noticed the minute you start giving some consent to that, mm. all of a sudden, the urge just grows. So if you don't nip it in the bud, mm. all of a sudden it's like the urge gets supercharged. Mm. The images start flashing into your mind, get supercharged. It really, the minute you start giving consent, all of a sudden, it's almost irresistible, and then by the time you, you, know, you give more consent and more consent, you're on fire for the money, or for the lust, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You're on fire, and you're already moving toward the objective you seek. So in other words, the uh, evil spirit, he has to wait until you kind of give uh, some form an, of initial consent. Mm-hmm. So you might think, hmm. That's an interesting "quote unquote" opportunity. Mm-hmm. I wonder. Okay, so now you've given a kind of a partial consent by saying "I wonder." Mm-hmm. Now, then the next thing, of course, is uh, the imagination starts clicking along, and then the the uh, the devil, the evil spirit, saying, "Up, ah, we got a customer," and you know he's going to start stoking those fires as fast as he can do it. And of course, the minute I begin to feel. Mm-hmm. You know, that pull of the, the imagination, the feel, the pull of the emotions that are coming from the imagination, mm-hmm. it's harder and harder for me to put a stop to it.
0: Right. right. Okay. Now, moving ahead, you got that, mm-hmm. uh, also the idea on page uh, 05, you say temptations can originate from within ourselves through demonic yeah. suggestion or both. Does it matter where they come from and should we deal with them differently? Um, Actually, it really doesn't
1: matter, you know, really uh, where uh, where they're coming from. The most, uh, every saint, you know, that has ever written on the subject has always said, nip it in the bud. Wherever it may come from, nip it in the bud. Because eventually, even if it just comes from within you, I want the money, you know, whatever it may be. If it comes from within you, assuredly, um, what's uh, the devil's going to take advantage the moment you go, "I wonder or you know you start giving that tacit consent he's all over it so eventually he's going to be in on the game no matter what the origin is. your best strategy ever and always is to nip it in the bud mm-hmm.
0: A famous line by Barney Fife uh, from Andy Andy Griffith show for years. Uh, he was well known for that particular phrase. Uh, uh, you say you say here. You say here. Most most philo- very popular down here in Alabama. Uh, most most philosophers would agree that desire is one of the most difficult human characteristics to explain, for it's more complex than a stimulus response mechanism. Explain.
1: Oh, yeah, I mean desire, I mean in order, first of all, you know, to have a desire, uh, you know, we're talking about you have to have some form of sensate consciousness, right? And then you have to have some innate thought that, uh, you know, of, of being pulled towards it. So when you really think about, you know, how does the desire work? Well, you could say, well, it's just a bunch of emotions. No, it, it's, it's emotions that are tied into consciousness and emo- now, if it's an animal, it's just emotions that are tied into sensate consciousness. Mm-hmm. I want to get the urge fulfilled. I want to get the yearning fulfilled. But it's still a yearning, and of course the, the, uh, the animal doesn't have any I. Uh, to talk about. Mm-hmm. But if you basically uh, are talking about a human being, there's an I, which is a self-consciousness, which is already mixed in with the desire. Mm-hmm. And when self-consciousness is mixed in with the desire, there's always a choice. Should I or shouldn't I? Now, the animal's not going to think that way. The animal's going to see the rabbit and chase it whereas in you know um it might you know uh, you know see a lion in its path and think it won't be thinking it'll just go oops don't think uh, i'll let the lion have the the uh the, the rabbit right mm-hmm. so it's just going to look at the, the the strongest urge of the moment and obey the strongest urge Uh, Or, you know, the strongest opportunity or the strongest Mm -hmm. danger. The point, of course, with human beings is the question, should. And that is a combination of conscience and self-consciousness. Very, very complex indeed. So when the desire hits the human being, and there's that natural tendency to say, should I or shouldn't I? Already you're displaying rationality. Already you're displaying self consciousness. Mm. Already you're displaying conscience, right? You know, the, the idea is, is moral or not moral. As What's the voice of God telling me? And so, automatically, this is an exceedingly complex action. And all free actions, um, all should actions, are exceedingly complex actions. But we don't just have a desire, we have a desire within the context of rationality, self-consciousness, and conscience. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it so complex, but nevertheless, that's what makes us free that's what this life is all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Sartre, you know, put it, well, you're just the sum of your free choices. Mm-hmm. Well, you're more than that, of course, but um, we don't want to uh, you know, neglect. There's some truth in what Sartre says. Our free choices eventually start accumulating to constitute our being. Mm-hmm. Now, we can always turn on a, on a dime, turn back to God, repent mm-hmm. you know, for our sins, and try and get back on the road, but those ch- past free choices, boy, oh boy, they can have an influence on us as to whether we're going to turn around and fall, you know,
0: fall at the feet of Jesus Christ and beg for His mercy. Right. Very good. Now, in the closing minutes, we've got about two and a half minutes or so. We talk about something we used to hear a, a lot about: the cardinal virtues. Okay, and the Church yeah. Fathers, medieval philosophers, recognized there are four cardinal virtues: prudence, temperance, for mm-hmm. and fortitude that could be brought Mm -hmm. on the process of fighting temptation. It struck me that these three are the most out-of-date words that you never hear anything about. In fact, you could take the opposite of each one of these and say that that's really what modern man thinks is the way to deal with life.
1: Well, you know, it's so unfortunate, but uh, uh, those words, uh, you know, they don't really have that much of a place in uh, non-religious psychoanalytic uh, uh, paradigms and now there are uh, religious psychoanalytic paradigms uh, you know like so dr richard gallagher or somebody uh, you know would would use a, a religious psychoanalytic mm-hmm. but a lot of them use purely freudian secular psychoanalytic paradigms where remember morality is just Ruled out, right? Beyond good and evil, as Nietzsche would say, or Freud would say, there's no such thing as good and evil. There's the super ego, which is conditioned by parents and teachers and priests and other uh, people like that. And you, you have these feelings that correspond to the to the conditioning that you have received when you were a kid, etc. Now, all you know, if if you believe that secular model, mm-hmm. then you can not only forget about good and evil, you can forget about Virtues. Now, of course, Plato and Aristotle did have a notion mm-hmm. of good and evil. It was only the enlightened Freud and, and Nietzsche who thought we could go beyond good and evil, that we could free ourselves from those, you know, purely anachronistic moral categories and transcend them with the new enlightenment and the new psychoanalytic paradigms mm-hmm. and the new uh, intellectual paradigms, the new elitist cultural paradigms. We can transcend them with wokeism. We can transcend mm-hmm. them all with uh, you know de- you know modernistic uh, you know and postmodern uh, philosophies, et cetera. We can deconstruct. All of good and evil out of everything. Well, if you can de- deconstruct good and evil, then you can deconstruct your conscience, you can deconstruct your religious sensibilities from within, and you can also mm-hmm. deconstruct every single solitary virtue. Is it surprising? Not surprising to me. Postmodernism is moving as fast as it can move to deconstructing all of it out of existence. Religious sensibility, interior religious sensibility, Mm -hmm. like the numinous experience, Uh, the conscience, uh, you know, exactly as John Henry Newman has articulated it so brilliantly, just deconstruct it out of existence, deconstruct uh, out of existence to all the virtues. What's a virtue? A virtue is a good habit, a habit toward goodness. Mm -hmm. Fortitude helps you to be good, prudence helps you to be good. A temperance helps you to be good. So all of these means, uh, cardinal virtues, to get to the good, to get to what a Christian would call love, to get to a good and evil in the moral sense of the word. Well, if there's no good and evil, what's the point of a virtue? Absolutely, it's it deconstructed and, and be, along and with the no, morality. No point
0: of watching this network or this show, but we got to go. Yeah. So if you'll uh, <laughs> give us your blessing on the way out the door, Father, that'd be great. <laughs>
1: very good and may almighty God send his Holy Spirit down upon you the spirit of wisdom the spirit to know how to respond to the culture the spirit to know what is really true and good and evil that is within yourself and within your Christian faith and may almighty God in so doing help you to be a leader and a teacher and an influence and force for the good in this culture in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit amen
0: amen thank you so much father spitzer have a great week and we invite you to pick out all the father spitzer's materials through our religious catalog we'll continue on with the topic of temptation ewtn bookmark an interview i did with the one and only dr ray Gurindi on living calm mastering anger and frustration he's also on with jeanette this week Uh, i'm sorry not jeanette but jim and joy at home so check that out that's always great He's always a lot of fun, and you know, when you're checking out all your great programming that we have on EWTN's YouTube channel, we have some short-form programs that list under the YouTube shorts, including Reflections by Mother Angelica, Fulton Sheen, the one and only Father Spitzer. That's all on our YouTube shorts on the EWTN YouTube channel. His shorts tend to be a little longer, but that's okay. We'll see you next week, right here, when we rejoin Father in His Universe.